Welcome to Bible study. Glad you're here. All of you, each one of you, as I look into each one of your eyes, to welcome you personally oh my to Bible study. That's not creepy. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Let's take a moment and pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, thanks for another opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would lead us, you would guide us. We ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit that he would teach us. Uh, we've come here to learn something from you and to be affected by you. And so, God, tonight I pray that we would take hold of your word, we would take hold of what you have for us, and I ask you, God, that uh, we would let down whatever fences and barriers that we put up in order to hide behind or somehow in our own minds protect ourselves, but I pray, God, that we would let down some guards and barriers tonight that you might have access to speak to us, you might have access to challenge us, that you might have access to change us tonight. I just ask for your Holy Spirit to have his way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 8. If you need a Bible, there's some available up here on the table, and you can feel free to use uh, the Bibles here. Uh, we'd love to take it, uh, just avail yourself to that. And uh, so we do have those available. Also, as you turn to Luke chapter 8, just a reminder, we do have a feature at Bible study. It is an interactive feature that is online, uh, especially specifically for those that are listening to this via podcast. Uh, it's at the, the website www.speakpipe.com, and it's a feature where you click on a button and you can leave a comment or ask a question. You find that at www.speakpipe.com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word, and leave us a message, and we'll get on that during one of our meetings in the future. So take advantage of that. Luke chapter 8, I uh, need a volunteer to read verse 21. All right, thanks for reading that. Now, this is one of those verses in the New Testament that is also in a couple of the other Gospels. So whenever that happens, I always like to look at the other Gospels too to see what they have to say. Because sometimes there's some slight differences between the accounts, which is to be expected, by the way, because you have three real people, uh, three separate real people that are actually giving account of what they're seeing and hearing. And so you would expect in an authentic, authentic accounting by three separate people for there to be slight differences between the three of them, because that's how we perceive things, that's how we see things in the real world. Anybody that takes statements from people, like insurance people, the police, anyone that does that for a living, security guards, whoever has to take uh, statements from people, they see that and learn that right away is that if you ask three different people what they saw, they're generally going to tell you kind of the same thing, but there's going to be slight differences in what they saw, what they remember, and what they heard. And so that's really authentic. And so the Gospels are like that. And I like the fact no one tried to fix them later either. They just left them just like that. And I know the, our biggest critics, they always point to those things. They look, see, see. And what they're really pointing at is the actual authenticity 
of the book itself, the thing that actually makes it completely and utterly believable is that there are things that are slightly different. And so we've got some eyewitness accounts of something that took place during the ministry of Jesus. I looked at them. There's three different places, three different Gospels that account this. They have a given accounting of what happens here with Jesus. And so kind of exciting stuff going on. Jesus is ministering to a multitude of people. What's a multitude, you may ask? Lots. It's a lot of people. and Thousands, likely. And so he's ministering to thousands of people. He's speaking. He's teaching. He's he's preaching. There's, there's a multitude. In fact, there was such a multitude that were trying to hear him that his mother and his brothers could not get through the crowd. That's how dense the crowd was of people. They were just jam-packed together so they couldn't get in. And they sent word in. The Bible says they want to talk to him. You can find the other accounts of this if you really want to do a little research on your own. The other accounts, we're in Luke 8. The other accounts are in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. And then in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 34, or somewhere around verse 34, and in and around that area. So what what's happening is, is that they've, they've come to get him. Now only, now one of the guys, in Mark, it talks about why they're there. Which is kind of interesting, is they've come to, they heard some of the things that he was saying, and they heard some of the things that he was doing, and so his mother and his brothers were coming to get him before he embarrassed himself and the family even more. They made the big adult decision to go find Jesus, to grab him and to haul him forcibly back to the house so that he would stop embarrassing himself and the family like he was currently doing. That was their plan. And so they got there to see him, to get him, and they couldn't get to him because there were so many people that had gathered together to hear what he had to say. Now, there's a couple of things that are going on that are pretty powerful. One is that multitudes had gathered to hear Jesus. He was teaching, he was preaching, he was doing ministry. The other thing that's kind of interesting to me is his mother. Now, we talked about this, I don't know if you remember, I think it was last week, we were talking about John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist? And he had sent people to talk to Jesus. Was that last week? Sure. He had sent people to talk to Jesus, and the message that he had for Jesus was, are you the one or should we wait for another? Now, in this situation, you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, who had angelic visitations come her way, supernatural, before he was even born. Angelic visitations come her way to tell her all, tell her all about Jesus. And she had also had different things happen during the life of Jesus. For example, when he had stayed behind in Jerusalem, when he was however old he was, 12 or whatever he was, and he was sitting there and he was questioning and he was speaking with and learning from and even teaching the, the high priests and the, the lawyers, the, those that knew the law and knew the scriptures, the, the religious leaders of the day. That's where they found him once they figured out he wasn't with him. And so there were those moments in the life of Mary where it talks about how she treasured these things in her heart. Well, we don't know what that means exactly, 
but she may have locked them up or something because at this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, all those things that have been treasured in her heart, and believe me, I'm not ripping on Mary, okay? All I'm telling you is that she had these things treasured in her heart, but they she wasn't thinking about them at the moment. What she was thinking about was what Jesus was doing sounded crazy. What she was thinking about was that he's making us look bad. What she was thinking about is we need to go get him and protect him from himself and protect him from others. And so she had gone with his brothers to take hold of him and to haul him back to the house. And it's interesting to me that she knew better. How'd she know better? Because angels told her. She'd seen it with her own eyes. She'd experienced it herself. But what Jesus was doing did not fit whatever was in her head about who Jesus should be. It just wasn't. And we don't know what was in her head. I don't know what was in her head. But there was something that Jesus was doing that did not fit whatever the, the idea she had was of who he was supposed to be her expectations. And again, this is another back-to-back, back-to-back week teaching about expectations, how powerful they are and how they can affect people, even like people you look at in the Bible that were just rock solid. John the Baptist, rock solid. Mary, the mother of Jesus, rock solid. And yet because of their bad expectation of what they thought, what they believed, what they expected Jesus to be wasn't being met They disregarded the supernatural revelation that they already had. They disregarded the experiential revelation that they had. And they went on whatever their expectations were not being met. That's a pretty powerful thing. And so that should be a warning to us that, again, I'm not looking down on either one of them. John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. And Mary, well, Mary's the mother of Jesus. So we're not looking down on either one of them. But what we learn from them is that expectations are super powerful. Super powerful. And they affected the way each of them saw Jesus, and it affected the way they reacted to him. So Mary and Jesus' brothers, they show up to this this multitude. And, And so... They, they get somebody, whoever it was, they saw his mother and brothers. And, and I want you to understand that they would probably know and understand what their intentions were being there. Because this will affect how Jesus responds to, that, to this man who comes to him. That whoever it was that came up to Jesus, the agent of Mary and his brothers... We don't know who he was. But he went up to Jesus to, to let him know your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. So Jesus' response, he answers the messengers. And I want to point out that he answers the messengers, not his family. He's answering whoever it is that came up to him and talked to him. That's who he's answering. Because they came up and they said that your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. And so he answers the messengers. And the way that he does that, he says, my mother and my brothers. And then he, and, and here's where all of the different gospels give us a little richer meaning. 
In Luke, it's just straightforward, right down to the bottom line. What did he say? He said that his, he indicated by what he said that his disciples were his mother and brothers. In other words, he who hears the word of God and does it. That's how he's answered in Luke. But if you, if you read in Mark, he looked around. In other words, the disciples that were close to him, he looked around at the people that were right around him. And then he said, my mother and my brother are those that hear God's will and they do it. There's a, there's a couple minor differences in how he answers. And then in, uh, I believe it was in Matthew, he stretched out his hand toward those and he indicated physically who he was talking about. But in each one of those cases, it was clear that he was talking about his disciples. In each of those cases, he was pointing to the, the guys that were closest to him and he indicated through that he said that he who does the will in Matthew, the will of my father, or in Mark, he who does the will of God, or here in Luke, he who does, here and does the word of God. And there's some slight differences between each of those. But we get a fuller meaning by reading all, all of them. And so the bottom line of what he's pointing out and the bottom line of what he's trying to say is is that you, you've come to me, whoever it was that had come to him, and he points to his disciples. And understand, he's being interrupted, isn't he? He's speaking to a multitude of people, thousands of people, and he's being interrupted by somebody who's telling him, well, your, your mother and your, your brothers are outside and want to take you away because they think you're crazy. They want to speak to you. And so Jesus' reaction was to stop what he was doing and look at that guy and say, well, my mother and my brothers, that's these here that hear the word and do it. That's my mother and brothers. And there's a couple things about that because we're being introduced into a new concept of what the family of God is. We're given a new concept of family. We're being given a new understanding, a new idea about family here. Because up until this point, and up until the ministry of Jesus, family was family. Like the way we think of it. And and never be shocked at how Old Testament we are as a church. Never be shocked by that. Because we are. We are super Old Testament. It's easier. It's easier to live that way. It just really is. And so Old Testament concept of family was... You got your mom, your dad, your kids, and then you've got their kids and those kids. And, and, and remember the whole, the way that Israel, I mean, what's Israel? What is Israel? Well, right. I mean, what, what does Israel mean? Who is Israel? Israel's a person, right? Israel is a person. The whole nation was named after their forefather. The person recognizing and in doing so, telling everyone that we are the children of this man, Israel. Okay? And so each of them, then the tribes were formed from his sons, except for Joseph had two sons. And so there were two half tribes formed from the sons of Joseph. But generally speaking, the, the tribes of Israel were formed from the sons of, of Israel. Right? 
And so each of those tribes then, the people that were in those tribes, even the 400 years later, hundreds of years later, that settled the promised land were still known by their forefather. So everything that had to do with Israel, everything that had to do with the way that they were set up, everything that had to do with the hierarchy and the leadership and, and, and how things were run had to do with a family structure. That's what it had to do with. Yet in the New Testament, you don't see that. Now I know a couple of disciples, a couple of pairs of disciples were brothers. But really disciples were not related. They were not the sons of the same father. And yet, when you look in the book of Revelation and it talks about the 12 tribes of Israel and how they're designated in the New Jerusalem, then they talk about the 12 apostles and how they're designated in the New Jerusalem or how in Revelation it talks about the 24 elders, which most people would interpret as meaning you look at the 12 tribes and you look at the 12 apostles. 12 plus 12 is 24. They're being treated in the same way, but their connection isn't the same. They are not the sons of the same father. That's not the New Testament concept. And that's what I want you to get from this, is that there's a whole different thing that God's doing in this New Testament understanding. There's a whole different thing that Jesus is proclaiming. A whole different thing that Jesus is speaking forth here. So, Jesus, in answering this question, he begins to establish a new idea about how we're related. That we're not really related because we're all born of the same physical father. But he says that my mother, which is kind of interesting because they're all guys he's pointing at, we would assume, among his disciples. Although some of his followers were women, but not the twelve disciples. But as he points to his disciples, he says, this is my mother and my brothers. In other words, this is my family. So that you wouldn't misunderstand that he's saying, these are my adopted brothers. Or we're just going to add them into the hierarchy of our family. That wasn't what he was saying at all. What he was saying and what he was pointing out to the rude guy that was trying to interrupt him what he was trying to point out to the rude guy that was trying to throw him off as he was speaking to the multitudes, what he was really saying was he was establishing something new. And that is my mother and my brothers. In other words, my family. And that was his whole known family. Understand that? His whole known family. By this time, his father was dead. His supposed father. Joseph. And so this was what was left of his known family. And he looks at his disciple, he looks at the guy trying to interrupt him and looks at all his disciples, points him out and says, this is my brother and my mother. In other words, this is my, this is my whole family right here. Everybody's left are sitting right here in this circle. Those that hear God and do what he says. That's a powerful statement. And it establishes a new order. And that, to me, is really important. Especially in a world where family is just falling apart. When you start talking about traditional family in the world that we live in, it's just falling apart. But the church is perfectly situated and set up by Jesus himself to handle that. 
That's how we're, we're ready. We're ready. As our world moves out of whatever that traditional thing that is the family. And I mean, I've got a wife and two kids, all right? I'm, I'm as, I'm a 2.1 kids or whatever. I'm as traditional as it happens, all right? And, and I'm not, I'm not, re- I'm not saying, oh, that's wrong. All I'm saying is, is that the trajectory of the world is moving away from that. I, you kind of see that, right? You kind of see that, that, that are the kids, and it's been this way for a while. I mean, how many people here came from, you know, a family where the mother or father was divorced at least once? Okay. All right. And we're not, you know, some of us aren't exactly spring chickens, all right? So this was happening and has been happening. But we're perfectly suited for that. The church is perfectly situated for that. And and it, it pains me when I see churches make people feel badly because they, they're not, you know, a mom and a dad and 2.1 kids. That really pains me because that's not why Jesus set up. That's not how Jesus did it. That that everything that takes place, and I want you to think about this, everything that takes place is supposed to be tailored to uh, a mom and a dad and 2.1 kids, or two kids? Is that how it's supposed to be? Well, that's not the way Jesus set it up. We love it. I, I mean, people, the church has been stuck in the Old Testament since the start. Most of the New Testament is trying to convince the church to get out of the Old Testament. The Gentiles were the only ones that really could figure it out. I mean, it, it took a really long time for people to leave behind the old trappings and leave behind the religious and leave behind the stuff that didn't matter. The Gentiles, they didn't come from anything, so they didn't have anything to compare it to. They were fine. But of course, then they got infected by everybody else. And so for a long time, stuck. Stuck in the old ways. Stuck in the old ideas. Stuck in the old ways of doing things. And yet we're perfectly suited for where God has us here and now. We have to change our minds about a couple of things, but we're perfectly suited for it. So the family of God... That whole idea, Jesus just challenges that there, doesn't he? Do you think what he said made any sense to the to the rude guy that interrupted him? Does that make any sense? My mother and my brothers are right here. He could look at him and say, that's not your mother and brothers. That sounds crazy. And what the guy didn't understand and what probably the disciples didn't understand, maybe, who knows if they understood it, was that he was establishing a new order. Somebody look at John fifteen fourteen. John, thanks. So, this is the other part of this that I really want to draw out, and I've done this before. Friendship is really important to God, and that's both Old and New Testament, but that got lost. The whole idea of friendship being something powerful, and I mean really powerful. More powerful than we think it is. More powerful than we've been led to believe. More powerful than maybe we've been taught or even experienced. But friendship is super powerful in the Bible. I mean, David, 
Jonathan? Who's Jonathan? Anybody remember? He was the Saul, he was the son of Saul. Saul was David's bitter enemy. He wanted to kill David. On several occasions. He was hunting him down on more than one occasion. David cared about Saul. David loved Saul. David honored Saul. David respected Saul. And yet Saul was out to kill him. But David and Jonathan were friends. So beyond Jonathan and Saul, which is father's son, Jonathan was friends with David. And both, it's described in the scriptures that their, their love for one another was greater than that for love for a woman. And so you have two primary relationships here that their friendship was greater than. You have a father-son and you have a husband and wife. And their relationship was described as or was evidenced by their actions and words as being stronger than both of those relationships. Well, that's impossible, Andy. Well, it was. It's not impossible. It is. It may not be something we understand. Maybe we haven't experienced that. Maybe we haven't lived that. But that's the way it's described in the Bible. Then you get Jesus here, my mother and my brothers. Or in John fifteen fourteen, who are his friends? The same people there to his mother and his brother. In other words, the primary relationships in his life, the, the greatest relationships in his life, were more accurately described as his friends. They're his family. If you wanted to use the word, you can. They're his family. And he describes that in, in a couple of different ways. So in John fifteen fourteen, Patrick, you read that, right? What, what did he say there? You're my friends. Who are my friends? Jesus said, um, "If you do what I command you." Okay, if you if you do what he says. So you have this concept of hearing and doing. You have the concept of hearing and doing, and so that's how his the, that's the the one characteristic that describes his mother and brothers or his friends. Hear and do. That's it. You're not born into it. You're not his friend because of privilege. You're not his mother or brother because of the will of a man or a woman. It's not anything to do with that. So it's no one's will. It's not anyone's privilege. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with, with any kind of, of power. It has nothing to do with any kind of societal structure. It has nothing to do with anything that mattered in that day or even today. Had nothing to do with it. Didn't matter where you went to school. Didn't matter what kind of education you have. Doesn't matter who you know. Doesn't matter who you don't know. Doesn't matter. The one characteristic that describes the, the family of God, the one characteristic that describes friendship with Jesus is that we hear and do. That's it. It is that foundational, that foundational to who we are. Now notice I didn't tell you that's how you get into it, did I? I said it describes it. It's a characteristic of it. Now keep that in mind. 
Now, earlier in Luke chapter 8, if you go back in Luke chapter 8 in the Bible there, there's a parable of the sower, starting in Luke 8, 5. And what you have in this parable is really an explanation, an expansion of what Jesus means by being a hearer and a doer of the word. So he already teaches this lesson in Luke 8, and then he brings us all the way to this point in Luke 8.21, where he says, and these are my mother and my brothers. This is my family. Who? Those that hear and do. But see, he had already taught on hearing and doing. He had already taught on what that means. He taught on what it looks like to actually do that and actually live it out. Because he had shared this parable, and this parable was a mystery of the kingdom. Right? It was revelation. It was something that, that was being unveiled to the people and to the disciples, to whoever could understand it. So he had just unveiled it. He just said, here it is. Boom. Look at it. Take it in. And then he goes through this, this, this series of teachings and he comes down to this point. It's like, this is my family. These are the people closest to me. These are my friends. These are my primary relationships. What do they look like? Well, hearing and doing. That's what it looks like. But we already talked about that, see? We already talked about how that, that looks and how that happens and the nuts and bolts of that in the parable of the sower. We already talked about that. You already learned that part. Well, I figure we better review. We're going to go backwards a little bit. And we're going to put it right into here. All right? We're going to stick it right into the, the middle of what we're talking about. It'll make a lot of sense like that. But the hearing is the seed, and doing is the action. Does that make sense? Hearing, well, what you hear, that's the seed. Doing is the action. And we'll see what that means. All right, so he talks about hearing the word of God. Now, in, in the parable, you've got different guys, okay? Where the sower, he goes out to sow, and he throws the seed, and it falls on different kinds of ground. You remember the parable of the sower? And so some of the seed, it falls by the wayside, kind of on the side of the road. Some of the seed, it falls on some rocky or stony ground. And then some of the seed... Falls among thorns. Just ringing a bell. You with me? And then some of the seed gets some good ground. And so it describes four different situations and how the Word of God goes forth and how the Word of God is received. Four different ways of seeing it. Four different ways of experiencing that. Four different ways of gaining an understanding, of taking in that Word that God is speaking. And you know what? Every single one of us falls into and has fallen into every one of these four. Every one of us. Every single one of us when it comes right down to it. So these four things speak to each one of us. You know, it's funny when the Bible sometimes describes different people or different situations, it will describe something and we'll think, well, I know who that's talking about. Or if I describe something else, I hope they're listening over there because that's right for them. You know what I'm talking about? You don't do that? Good. Okay, you don't do that. That's good. But what I'm telling you is, <laughs> is that each one of these <laughs> speaks to us, okay? Each one of us. We're, we're, this, we're this, per, this person. Four different ways. 
four different times. Somewhere along the way, this has been us. It's been, it's been me. It's been you. All right. So we want to do that. First, let's look at a couple other places where uh, the word of God is described this way. Uh, Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 5 and 6. Colossians 1, 5 and 6, and 1 Corinthians 3, 6. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Colossians 1, 5 and 6. Anybody have that? The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard is the true message of the gospel. That has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. All right, so you see that the gospel here is described as what? Bearing seed and producing fruit. In other words, the idea behind that is that the word of God, the gospel, the revelation, the supernatural understanding, whatever, however you want to describe it, that is, is finding soil. And that's how it's being described. It's like a plant. It's like a seed. And it grows and it bears fruit. All right, do you see how it's using the same descriptor? Pretty common. All right, First uh, Corinthians three six. All right, so here's Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, saying, "I came, I shared the gospel with you, I shared the revelation of God with you, I laid down doctrine for you, I got you going as a church." And then Apollos, he was another guy that came around. There was an itinerant teacher, and he taught, and so he watered the seed. The seed grew, and that's what's bearing fruit. All right, so this is something used elsewhere, uh, specifically in the in the epistles, to talk about this is some, the way that we can understand God's word in us, that we likely should understand God's word in us, at least one way that we should understand it, and we should think of it this way. So the seed... It's described in Luke 8.11. This is the revelation of God. This isn't just the Bible. Okay? In other words, the Bible isn't being planted in us. Alright? Don't picture the guy that was sowing seed, sowing books. He wasn't throwing books onto the ground as he was walking along through the field. That is not the idea. That is not the, the picture you want in your head. That wasn't what was happening. The seed, the word of God, as it's described, is speaking about, it could be, you can say the gospel. Because that's the revelation of God. You can say the mysteries of God that are being unveiled to us. You could say the revelation of God that is being uh, that is being brought to light for us. You could say the mysteries of the kingdom. However you want to describe it, God is speaking into our lives. He's speaking something into our lives. He's scattering that over us. And understand, we as the ground, our hearts as the ground, we're not jumping up into the feed bag to get the seeds. God's willingly giving them to us. They're coming our way. They're coming. Good ground is the key here. Seeds are there. Seeds are being scattered. Seeds are being thrown. There's nuggets everywhere. There's revelation everywhere. There's there's mysteries being unveiled everywhere. There's mysteries that are being shown everywhere. All these things are taking place. It's the ground that matters. 
Where's it falling? Where's it falling in you? Where's it falling in me? You see, doing the Word of God is actually taking actions, putting it into practice, is integrating that Word into our life. How do you integrate something into your life? How do you integrate something into your life? I know how I do. You have to do it. Yeah. And, and, and okay, I'll give you an example, kind of a weird example. Alright, it's not that weird, but, like, I have a hard time remembering body movements. Like exercises. I have a really hard time with it. I have a hard time dancing because of that. I'm not afraid to dance. I'm not embarrassed to dance. I just can't remember how to do it when it comes down to it. And I'll go to class, and I've been to class. Like June, we, we got free classes a number of times. They, they come in the mail or something. And so we go to Arthur Murray, and we take classes, okay? Or we go to wherever we went to take classes. And I would get it for a moment, and I could do it right in that moment. But if I did not keep doing it, I'd just forget how to do it. I, I can't remember. And and, and I, know, I know she thinks I'm faking, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I can't remember. Like line dancing, I can't remember how to do it. Gym class, I used to dread square dancing. Not because I gave, I cared about square dancing. I, I just couldn't remember what to do. I kind of remember it for class, but then the next class, I wouldn't remember. Everybody just remember what they were still doing? I have no idea. It's like I'm starting over again. Well, we're going to build off of last week's class. No! No! So... So it's an issue that I have. So uh, with exercises, the same way. There are certain exercises, if I do them and I practice them over and over again, I remember them. But let's say I'm in a hurry one day and I don't do them. Well, then the next time that I do the same exercise, and I could have been doing them for two years, but the next day that I do them, I am likely to forget whatever I skipped. It's just the way I am. I have to do things to integrate it into my life and to keep it integrated. That's just me. I know most people don't have this deficiency. And I'm probably, you may have that to a certain extent. All of us have that to a certain extent. I'm a little weird, all right? But I'm giving you from my weird perspective that I really have to do that or I'll just forget. And we all have that in us. So, To integrate it into our life, we need to actually practice it. Let's look at the where the seeds. Let's look at the parable. It says the seed fell on the sideline, on the side of the road. And what that describes is, you know, that person that kind of hears stuff by accident or carelessly. In other words, not listening. It's when things cross your way. Like, yeah, you know, I was there. There were a number of years ago where God would move sometimes at our meetings on campus or in church or wherever it was, and there'd be people that would really take that in and really kind of take in God's word about that move, and then there were other people that just happened to be there. And it's always interesting to see how people react to that, but who's going to take that with them when they go somewhere? It's the person that really takes that, that word in. They're not there by accident. They're not receiving like whatever is happening around them. But I want to tell you something, and if you can understand this, this could revolutionize who we are when we gather. And that's this, that most Christians, for whatever reason, believe that any move of God should be with them on the sideline. 
In other words, that, that we've been taught somehow to believe that if God's going to move, well, he'll move despite us. Well, I don't think that's really a good perspective. Because he might. And he does sometimes. And we might be on the sidelines during worship, or we might be on the sidelines during service, or during kinship, wherever we're at. We might be there, but kind of on the sidelines. If God moves by his spirit, we might join in because we happen to be standing there. But really, is that... Are we really taking that in? Or are we just looking for the happenstance, blow-by, uh, Jesus move? I, I don't believe that's what God has for us. I think he does those things, but that's not really what's a lasting thing. That's not the thing that we're going to take with us. It's not the thing that's going to matter ultimately in our lives. If Jesus is going to move here and Jesus is going to move in our midst, you're going to be a part of that, I hope. You're going to be in the middle of that, not on the sideline. That he's not moving just because he just catches you off guard. But he might stir that thing up in your heart and then you move. And you sense the move of God in your heart. You taking a chance. You speaking out. You singing something. You moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. That he's stirring that up in you. Not just because you happen to be standing near it. And I want to encourage you to that. I want to encourage you not to be on the sideline. I want to encourage you not to just hear by accident or, or, or be, be careless because the person who is like that, this, this parable tells us this one truth about the person who's like that is that if you're on the sideline and you're just getting stuff by accident because you happen to be close to it, that is easily stolen out of your heart by the devil. Okay, in the parable it says birds come and they eat it up. But when Jesus explained it, it's the devil. You leave that stuff laying out there because it's just on the side or it's just, you know, kind of you're there, but it doesn't really matter. That's, you're leaving that out for the devil to take. And he will. You know, move a guy going, everybody's on the sidelines. Easy, easy pickings on that. Easy. There's a lack of investment. There's a lack of, of giving from somewhere here. Instead of, yeah, you know, I'll go with it if it happens again. That's easily stolen. And does, it just gets stolen. Second way it's described in that word, that revelation, that understanding, that mystery. Uh, it says it falls among rocks or in stony places. And that and that that's us when we hear stuff, you know, and we're joyful that we hear it. Oh, that's awesome. That's great, Andy. Thanks for sharing that. That was really good. Okay. Yeah, but that's about as deep as it goes. You see, and part of the reason it doesn't go any deeper is because our heart is hard. If your heart is hard, there's no room for any roots to grow. There's nowhere it can go. And so it bounces in there. you got enough sense to look at it. It says, that was, yeah, that was really good. Thanks. Doink, 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 doink. No root. So again, what happens? Tries to sprout, tries to do something. It's doing its job. It's, you know, it's creative. It does what it's supposed to do. It's supernatural. It's trying to do something in here, but the heart is so hard that it just gets scorched up. Dies off. No root. No water. No chance. 
Even though it's trying, little guy's trying in there, a little seed, he's trying, can't get in. And so, what does that tell us? If no roots allowed in our hearts, what's going to happen to those seeds that are going to get spread our way? What's going to happen to that revelation that comes our way? What's going to happen to that that mystery that's being unveiled in front of us? That awesome thing. What's going to happen to it? Eh, it'll dry up. A heart, a heart is important for us, as it says in Hosea. Every now and then, you need to plow that thing up. Hosea talks about you need to plow the fallow ground in your heart every now and then and let it get churned up a little bit. Let it get soft. Because our our natural way, the natural way of all things is to get hard. Like you you leave a field out there long enough, what happens to it? It just hardens up and you can't plant anything. you got to go out and disc it. You know, a field sits under the snow all winter. It's just packed down, packed down, packed down, packed down, all the ice and the snow, and then you got to go churn it up in the springtime. Or you can't plant anything. That's nature. That's nature. And so we got to fight that. You, you can't just assume you're going to have a soft heart. Just like you can't assume the field's going to be soft. you got to go and do something about it. And I don't even know what that means for you to, to plow up your heart. I mean, I know what it means for me. For me, it's, it tells me I need to spend some time in worship. It tells me i got to spend some time in the Word. It tells me i got to spend some time praying with somebody every now and then. And really feeling something that somebody else feels too. And really looking at how I feel about stuff and letting that happen. I have to let that happen. If I don't, I'm going to just get hardened and then those seeds just bounce right off. So I don't know what that means for you. But all I can do is encourage you to make sure that you're getting it plowed up every now and then. The Bible would talk about taking time to repent. In other words, looking at stuff and saying, yeah, I need to change this, I need to change that, I need to change that. God, I'm sorry. And let that ground get turned up every now and then. It's good. It's good for you. It's good for me. Okay, third place it talks about is that the seeds fell among the thorns. And what this is, this is when we hear this revelation, this is when we hear this word, this is when we receive this mystery that's being unveiled in front of us, the most awesome thing ever. It's great. Wow. Wow. This is great. And then we just go on with our lives the way they were before. It's like God says something, God shows us something, God gives us something that's so great, and we're just so excited about it, but then we receive it, it's like, yeah, that's awesome, I'm going to go on my life the way, exactly how it was before I heard that. Doesn't change a thing. Does not change a thing. Just going to keep going. I can't let that bother my five-year plan. I can't let that interrupt this or that or whatever it is. Can't let that happen. And as you go on with the status quo, according to the parable, that which God has planted in us, that which God has revealed, that which God has shown us gets choked out because we're just going about our lives the same way we used to go about our lives. We run out of time and we run out of energy because we're just doing the same things we were doing before. And so there's no time and there's no energy to invest into this new thing that God has shown us and God has led us into. 
So it gets choked out. Okay, you all hear me that this is me and you, right? That these things happen. These things do happen. They do happen. But we can do something about it. We really can. We can actually do something about this and see some things change. Because God wants us to live in His revelation. I believe that. I believe that. I believe God is showing us mysteries. And He's unveiling mysteries before us. That there's mysteries of the kingdom that are being uh, just brought forth. And we can take that and they can find good ground and they can grow and they can produce fruit in us. Because that's the fourth person he talks about is the good ground. You know, that's the honest response. That's the spirit winning the battle over the flesh. That's what that is. That's the honest response. The honest response isn't to ignore something. It's to really just say, this is where I'm at. This is who I am. I want that. The honest response is that I I don't understand everything that this is going to involve in the next 20 years. You never do. But I want that. That's the honest response. Disciples, when Jesus came to them, they said, he said, hey, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Do you think they understood that completely? What that was going to mean to them in the next 10 years? No. No. But they dropped what they had and they followed him. I want that. I want that. I want you to want that. Because I, I I really believe that we're family with him. I really believe that we're friends with Jesus. I really believe that. I believe that we're not only friends with him, but he's building friendships among us. That there's something greater that is in this world than whatever everybody else thinks is the best. I think there's something better. I really do. I've seen it. I've tasted it. I know it. I know it. And so I want to encourage you along that way and along that path. I didn't point out your problems and your shortcomings to make you feel badly about it. I just want to let you know there's a way out. That's what I want to let you know. There's something better. You don't have to live there. You don't have to live there. And so as Jesus said, This is my mother and my brothers, right here. This motley crew of guys that were sitting around him. Here's my family, that's all I got. My friends. And I believe he meant it. And I believe he still means it. He's here in our midst. If you can see his hand, here they are. My mother and my brothers, my friends. They that do the will of my Father. They that do my will. They that hear the word of God and do it. Anybody have any questions or comments or anything?
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I think, and I, well, I think people just explain things away. Well, he didn't really mean that, but I think he did mean that. When you think about even, uh, even on the cross, he looked at John and he looked at Mary, his mother, and he said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. In other words, he was, he was like just joining them together as family. By his proclamation, even of that, it's like here you have, you know, they're they're not related in any way, shape, or form physically, but they were related through him, spiritually. Yeah. She had to, you know, she had to though come to a place where she understood who he was, and at that moment when they were. You know, nothing he said that in that moment changed from that moment until that moment on the cross when he said that to Mary and John. It's the same statement. So, any other comments or questions? Yes. You know, it's interesting, though, if you go to old-timey churches, why do they call each other? Right. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's like it's there. There's a form of it right there. You see it. But it's not really being pursued or understood in that way. And I and I would suggest too, and I, I hadn't really thought this through a lot, but I would suggest too that there's always an issue with reconciling an Old Testament mentality with a revelation of Jesus. I just really believe that. And I think that, that people who are, refuse to reconcile those two things are really going to have a hard time moving forward in the new revelation that Jesus brings. They're just going to really have a really hard time with it. Because... They can't leave behind what they believe or think. 
And so they're constantly trying to make the two things match up, but they don't. They just don't. And, and I think that makes it extra hard to even understand, even receive new revelation because we have a, a natural barrier against it if we're still holding on to the old. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I would hope, and this is going to sound really weird, maybe, I don't know how you, you take it, but I'd hope as people become more confused about what a family is, that what we're doing will make more sense to them. Right. Because it, it is different, and it is a different idea, but... Really, I think people are super confused about what a family is anyway. And so our part of our function is to not, obviously, not reproduce what they've already experienced in the dysfunctional life that they're coming from. But that's true on a lot of different levels. Now, there is all, there's always going to be some dysfunctionality because we're still people trying to get along with each other. But it should be of a different kind. In other words... Uh, it, it shouldn't be coming out of certain places that that kind of dysfunction comes out of. And uh, while you can expect there's going to be disappointments, you expect people aren't going to do what you think they're going to do, they're not going to say what you think they're going to say, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can always find something wrong with everybody. I mean, it's just a fact. But that, that in the midst of all that, in the midst of all of the difference and mistakes and kind of nasty, not not nastiness, but kind of messiness is what I want to say. The messiness of relationships, that it should be infused with a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of love and a whole lot of forgiveness. And maybe that didn't happen in the earthly family or in, you know, where you come from, but it should be infusing whatever's happening here. And, and that should make a huge difference. Right. So if a person could, if a person, I mean, we live with certain expectations. In other words, uh, that's kind of the basis for intimacy, in a sense, uh, that we expect people to what? Be, okay, polite, uh, honest, maybe. Maybe not. Thoughtful. Okay. All right. So I'm just, I, I, whatever. I'm just throwing out words. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to set any expectations, but it is a basis of intimacy. In other words, 
But if you know a person well enough and you know their personality, uh, you may run into somebody who doesn't express their emotions very well. But you know that they feel a certain way about you and they express it in other ways, like maybe through their actions or something. And so they're not meeting a verbal need that you have, right? But you can interpret their actions as the way they feel. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like we learn from each other and we learn to live with each other. Okay, and so that's where the grace and all that comes in because there has to be room for that discovery process to actually happen. And if there's no room for that to happen, there's not going to be any intimacy. That's why people get divorced. <laughs> I mean, it's seriously, it's like, yeah, you're a jerk. Okay, yeah, you're a jerk too. Goodbye. Because that's easier than giving space to actually figure out what's going on, learn from each other, and grow together. And that space requires grace and patience and love and something bigger. Yeah. So. All right. Let's pray. God, thanks for uh, just loving us, and thank you for giving us uh, a family. Uh, and... and for lack of a better way to understand this, a friendship and, and a family that we can find ourselves in. Described in all kinds of different ways, a body, a tribe, uh, however we want to see ourselves and understand ourselves, but you bring us here and now, and you've brought us together for such a time as this. And so I pray, God, that we would uh, just be filled with your grace and fill with your love. And I thank you that you're a God who brings revelation uh, to us. And so I pray that you would fill the spaces between us with grace and love. I pray, God, that our hearts, whatever we need to do to, to break up the hardness, whatever we need to do to, to uh, prepare the ground for to receive that which you're pouring out, to receive the revelation, to mysteries being unveiled, mysteries of the kingdom being brought forth. God, I just ask you that we wouldn't be standing on the sidelines. We wouldn't hear what you have to say and just go back to what we were doing uh, out of stubbornness or out of fear or whatever it is that causes that. That we, we wouldn't be a people that would, would be so hard that nothing can take root. But God, I pray that things would get nice and soft in us over time and that you would teach us how to break up the fallow ground of our hearts. You teach us how to pay attention to what you're doing, what you're saying, to put ourselves in a position to not only receive it, but to also respond to it, to also act on it. Because God, we pray for fruit through our lives. God, there's been a lot of revelation here. And God, I'm praying for the fruit. There's been a lot of things that have been spoken over us, a lot of things that have been shown us. God, I'm praying for the fruit. Lord, there's been a lot of things that, God, you have brought just supernaturally to us. God, I'm praying for the fruit of that. I'm believing you for the fruit of that in each one of us. So, uh, thanks for the seed. Thanks for the opportunity to respond. Thank you, God, for the life that you give us together. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen.
Amen. God bless you. Good to see everybody, and we'll see you again soon.